what's good y'all my name is chris shreve aka c shreve the professor welcome to another episode of who needs a classroom podcast Uh, today will be the first episode in a series of episodes um, on biostatistics this is a course i taught for a decade plus like i think 11 years something like that um, at appalachian state university it was a senior level course uh, in most of the years I taught it, it was in health promotion, and then eventually we, sw- we switched to public health and became a certified school of public health. So it's all, it, it, we're looking at biostatistics, it's all in this public health numbers that revolve around human health type sphere. So it sounds fancy, biostatistics, biostats, but it's really just statistics applied to the health kind of arena. If I was, you know, a business guy, I'd be teaching business stats if that was the same type of class, you know. So let's just kind of hop into all that um, and whatnot. So, um, again, I did teach this for 10, 11 years, so some credibility on this side. Um, this was always a fun class to teach. And students were always really terrified of the word biostats. And the um, textbook I used, it, I think it was titled, like, Basic Statistics for the Health Sciences. And I told them, what's the first word? Basic. So that's how we're going to teach it. And so it, you kind of broke numbers down, broke the broke the math down in a way that was, you know, doable. So they could actually see how you calculate standard deviation by hand or really any of it, ANOVA or, or whatever we'll get into. So, okay, so let's, let's kind of start from the beginning. That's the goal today. So uh, what are statistics? Uh, basically, it's just data, um, right? So it's just ways to represent information numerically, okay? So if we want to know how far uh, it is from me to you, we might measure that in miles. We might also measure it in how long it takes me to get there. You know, there's various ways we can, you know, do this numerically, right? Um, back in the day, it might have been a day's time or half a day's travel or something like that. So there's, there's different measuring sticks throughout historical progress there as well. Um, why do numbers matter? Well, uh, all the sports folks know, you know, if you want to see, you know, how your favorite player did, you want to see a stat line, you know, how, how good his game was will be kind of reflected in the numbers that he put up that night. So that's, that's kind of an important part of that. Um, so when you're really looking at the body of statistics and, and kind of biostatistics and what it does with those numbers, it's going to collect them, you know, you know, literally the stats guy on the on the bench who you know back in the day would write down shots taken made you know read the the actual stats you know in high school we had a stats guy or a guy who just collected the you know the shots and the steals and everything so collecting the data organizing the data so putting into that flow chart that that sheet the organizational spreadsheet um analyzing it um finding a way to interpret it you know find a way to present it once you have your findings that's what uh, statistics is doing so one of the words we get into oftentimes is significance. Are our results significant? So what does significance mean? That's one of the big things we'll get into, and it relates to probability. Because when we say something is significant, we say this is bigger than this by this certain margin, and we say that margin is significant statistically. Well, oftentimes if it's based on a small sample size, we're making a probability, st- probability statement about the larger group and then that really comes down to, you know, what's our, you know, what kind of better we hedging, kind of, so to speak. Um, and if we really, you know, kind of feel clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is 
truly different and it's of magnitude that could not be explained by anything other than a real difference, i.e. when we're looking at placebo versus, you know, a real vaccine that works and those type of things. Um, when we really see a difference in the test group versus the control group, um, that's kind of, that's where significance comes into play. So we'll get into things like that, probability, significance, um, we'll talk about different forms of data, right? So we can have data that is descriptive. That might be the census. You know, how many people live in your state, your county, in the U.S.? You know, that's numbers describing, right? So that's one thing, but we could also have numbers or statistics that deal with not just describing, but inferring what's going to happen next. Or, you know, say if we're thinking of that, that census version, maybe a Gallup poll, you know, who's going to be the next president of the United States based on exit polls, that type of thing. That's inferential statistics. That's where we're trying to make a prediction based on um, a smaller group and make a generalization about the larger group. So if we're using inferences, it's, and you know, I, I mentioned probability earlier, this is kind of where I, I threw in the words like hedging your bet, that type of thing. You're, you can use numbers to kind of predict what's going to happen pattern-wise. So that's where numbers, I think, are pretty... Uh, pretty useful um, for folks. Uh, you know, many coaches and folks in the sports world definitely know about using stats to kind of help measure performance. And so, you know, that can, you're, you're trying to, you know, kind of predicting future performance based on, you know, where this measuring stick is now, that type of thing. So, some of the ways that we collect that data. So, two kind of big umbrella groups would be surveys and experiments. So, an experiment would be just as it sounds. You know, we would have controls. We'd probably have test group, you know, subject A, and then the control group over here. Maybe even a test group B, that type of thing. But um, in an experiment, there are controls, right? It's, it's much more controlled than a survey where we're just kind of collecting your feedback, right? If you go... You know, almost every college campus does these surveys for freshmen that are just walking across, you know, campus to their class. And they'll just say, hey, will you take this quick survey type of deal? And there's collecting data kind of informally, but that's a survey. Um, and it's very useful in some ways, but you're, it's, it's much less controlled than an experiment. So these are different, different perspectives. So from the survey perspective, um, we could do a retrospective survey or a prospective type of survey. So these are more than just, you know, passing the person the questionnaire, um, a retrospective survey might be where we're trying to figure out, you know, we don't know, say, you know, rewind the time, you know, on the calendar, on the clocks, like, you know, 50, 60 years, and we don't know about cigarette smoking in the way that we do now. Um, I guess we were already accumulating some of it then, but maybe rewind it 60 or 70 years and we don't have the data yet. How do you figure that data out? Well, you can't really, you know, do a, a survey prospectively where you prescribe this group to smoke cigarettes and this group not to, um, but you could follow them along. You could follow 100 people, 50 of which happen to be non-smokers, 50 of which happen to be smokers, and then for the next 5 to 10 to 20 years, see what happens to them. And that's, you know, on a much larger scale, what the Framingham study, Framingham study is, um, pardon me, whichever one of those pronunciations is, uh, I'm rusty on this, I haven't taught this in class in a minute, that's why we're doing these lectures now, um, but following them forward, that'd be the prospective survey. And so we might check in with them regularly and just monitor their progress. In a retrospective, that might be us looking backwards and saying, okay, this number of women had uh, complications with pregnancy 
Um, and we look at smokers versus non-smokers. Take a thousand women and look at 500 smokers versus 500 non-smokers and see what the, what the rate is, that type of thing. So that would be looking backward through the medical records. And that's different than following a group for 20 years. So there's differences there that we'll talk about. Um, in a retrospective uh, survey or uh, type of study, we might call that a case control study. Look for you know, a group of oftentimes, or not oftentimes, but you know, sometimes a kind of rare case and then find controls for it and then see if we can find what variables might have led to it. Um, in a prospective type survey, we're looking at more of a cohort following it forward. And that's more expensive and more timely, but oftentimes it can be very, very effective in connecting the dots and in finding connections and correlations and associations, not necessarily finding causality. That's a little more kind of in the experimental realm, or realm although it's not unheard of, but it's, it's a little bit more of, of finding connections. Um, and again, whereas the, the head-to-head studies in more of an experimental sense might be finding causality. So in a full tilt, so to speak, kind of experimental situation, like a clinical trial, say we're trying new COVID vaccines, or historically we're looking at, you know, a polio vaccine uh, with Jonas Salk. You can imagine, you know, a clinical trial, you know, especially when compared to those surveys we were talking about being very different and being maybe much more controlled. Um, the population is, is really receiving the exact same shot um, or maybe the placebo group versus <clears throat> the control group is receiving the identical kind of procedure and everything is happening the same, but the, you know, it's the only difference is there's a placebo there. There's the, it's not the real uh, pill. So when you look at a clinical trial, uh, the protocol will stand out. You know, it's very, very specific. It's very thorough. Um, there's going to be, if we're going to have head to head groups blinding, you're not going to know which group you're in. Um, Single blinding would mean the subjects don't know which group they're in. Double blinding would mean that the researchers also or the testers do not know as well. And so, you know, it's really going to help to create the scenario where the placebo effect is much more really happening because nobody knows what's really the, tr- the real treatment and not, and not. That gets more difficult in kind of the exercise nutrition um, world if you think about it. If, if you have a group that, say, receives health education from like a personal trainer, and so maybe they're doing exercise, but they're also standing right there with the person doing 40 minutes of cardio and talking with that person, so they're getting some health education. If you don't find somehow a way for this other group, this test group, to still get the health education, then you'll miss one of the kind of equitable factors here. So you can't just have the person not exercise. They probably need to still talk to somebody about health education to kind of replicate that 40 minutes of treadmill talk, so to speak. So those things have to, you have to kind of create this equality between groups so that you can identify this test measurable. And that's where it gets a little tricky. And that's where the protocol comes into play. If you're just doing kind of a retrospective study and looking at the differences in smoking women versus non-smoking women, it's not the same as if you come in and you talk to them every single day you're looking through their data and their history, and maybe it was well collected, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe the researchers had bias, and maybe it was from a different time. And so it gets tricky when you're looking backwards. When you're looking forwards, it's it's if it's your study, you can really control it, obviously. But it gets again, it's kind of a cost uh, barrier sometimes to follow groups for ten and twenty years. 
some re, uh, research universities have the ability to do that. So along the lines of blinding and where groups don't know which, you know, where folks don't know if they're in group A or group B or, you know, control group or experimental group, that type of thing. Um, randomization is the kind of principle we're relating to there is everybody should have equal chance of being group A and group B. We can't have the researchers saying, oh, put him over there, put him over there, put her over there, put her over there. It needs to be, you know, kind of this randomization idea where it's that equal number chance out of a hat type thing, you know, where it's, it's you know, this true random um, and that's difficult to really have happen sometimes. You'll find, actually, when you see some of the self-selection um, where you don't get full turnout um, in surveys or in, in folks who you'd like to select from the community or whatever may happen. So randomization is kind of easier talked about than achieved, but that's a, an ideal there. True randomization can help to kind of eliminate bias, but that's, that's easier said than done. So we oftentimes have a treatment group and a control group, so... So a group is taking a blood pressure pill and the other group is taking a you know, placebo. That's, that's real simple. But when you look at treatment and control, if it's exercise group versus non-exercise group or you know, smoking group versus non-smoking group or if it's you know, different communities, other things start to come into play. It's, you're not so easily going to identify one variable because things tend to interplay. And so it's not so simple to just say, oh, it's choices regarding this, because the, these choices are oftentimes interrelated to many, many other factors. And so that's part of what we get into in a class like biostatistics is, is how is one group different from another? And are we able to effectively identify differences and learn from them? Or are we sometimes... I don't know, identifying problems and, and really, you know, coming up shorthanded at solutions. This is what I saw. I think why, part of why I left uh, higher education was, I don't know, I wanted to obviously pursue music, but I also felt like I had trained enough young professionals and I was kind of ready to go do something different. I had been, you know, kind of in my ivory tower for like 12 years, something like that. So I was kind of ready, ready to move um, on. Anyways, uh, part of what I guess maybe I felt like I was feeling there um, is bias, is, is being in a hypothetical world where I'm not actually feet on the ground as much. I, I love rap because I'm out in the, I'm in, I'm feet on the ground. I go talk to people of all walks of life. I rap in front of crowds all over um, in venues of, you know, large size, small size, you know, festival shows, small, tiny bar shows everywhere. And so you meet people of all walks of life and it helps you to understand your own biases because we all have bias, but um, we're looking at bias from a statistical perspective. We're talking about systematic error. So if we did true randomization, if everybody could have a, a digit number and we could put every, everybody's number in a hat, kind of like a lottery, and it was truly perfect and it could all be tumbled around, we could pull the lotto number out, then that'd be you know randomization, like the, name, the number in the hat. Or... In the case of, you know, like a random number generator. But it's difficult to really achieve when you, when you see it in practice. We'll talk a good bit about randomization. And how do you achieve that? How do you achieve a scenario where you don't have bias? And it's really hard. Um, I think harder than most folks really recognize. Um, so systematic error is what you're trying to remove. And um, 
ways that you can reduce that and that are cost effective, et cetera, are, are things that you talk about in a class like biostatistics. So uh, today's just the intro day, right? <laughs> so I'm just kind of giving you a big scoop. Um, why is biostats important? Um, why is this an important subject? Why would I enjoy you know, talking about it for 10 years and why do I want to talk about it on my podcast? Well, it's useful because it can help you separate fact and fiction. You will oftentimes, especially now, good Lord, coronavirus, et cetera, <clears throat> health is going to remain on the news uh, during the times that I taught uh, at App State. It was, let's see, 08 is when I started. So um, Obama being elected is my first fall. And so, you know, instantly healthcare is the omnipresent topic in the country from then forward, which is I'm teaching biostats, I'm teaching lifestyle disease risk reduction, I'm teaching weight management, all these health classes that are related to that are public health, health promotion, nutrition, exercise related. And and the focus um, of these health and fitness type classes, et cetera, is helping kids to and, you know, consumers and, and folks whoever you're educating sometimes these are classes if you teach like an intro health and fitness class that is one of our kind of like wheelhouse classes because i think it's they have to get two credits from the gen ed curriculum in health and like wellness and so they'll take this intro two credit health and fitness class which i helped i think put it online and helped teach it for a while and helped <clears throat> a bunch of stuff with it and it was a cool class to teach but it would be a bunch of non-majors so they didn't know about stuff and you had to kind of teach it at like a freshman type level even though you'd have seniors sometimes because it was, it was required so you'd have the you know the lazy senior kind of like fifth year like oh are we talking about exercise this is phys ed but you you got to make it kind of spice it up and make its health and um it should be you know health and fitness but it should also be like you know personal health talk you can really kind of open health to a much wider lens to where you can talk about psychological health you can talk about mental health you can talk about you know your relationships socially, you can talk about, you know, sexual health, which for college kids is really important. And anyways, it helps people to separate fact from fiction. If you're looking at weight loss, folks have been sold a million different weight loss programs. I mean, the South Beach diet slash Atkins diet slash, you know, uh, caveman, paleo, uh, you know, anything high protein, low carb, that's like a 210 year old diet. Maybe, maybe like 200 years. I think when I first started teaching, they were saying 180 year old diet. It's older than that now because I'm old. So, um, no, I think that was when I was in college, but like it's, it's like a 200 year old diet. Like the idea of ketosis and the idea of putting yourself into shock where you're not eating enough carbs and you're eating just protein and, and fat and then your body starts to kind of starve. That's not a new concept, you know? So, Helping folks to separate fact from fiction, understanding when a, a, sur a, uh, a survey is being presented as if it was a clinical study. Well, helping folks to understand, like, see a headline, look at the article, see how the data is being presented. Maybe look at the article even and understand what the study was doing. Sometimes how it's being misrepresented to you or it's misinformation. These are useful skills for our uh, graduates. So that was part of what I was teaching at school was helping folks to understand how to critically analyze the data that was coming in at them, um, which is constant, especially now it's a barrage of data. So when you're a healthcare worker on the front lines, when you're a practitioner, they're having to 
practice their craft, but also constantly be on the front lines of what's the best practices that are evolving in a day-by-day basis. So that evidence-based practice mentality is difficult to accomplish right now. So kudos to those on the front lines pulling that off right now. That's the type of things we talk about in a biostats class. So um, this helps folks. If you have a, a point of reference from uh, a statistical point of view, it'll help you professionally. It'll help you really socially, uh, just kind of in, a, in an intellectual point of view. Numbers really help the world to make more sense, I promise you. I'll reference sports a lot because when we look at standard deviation, we want to know basically did Michael Jordan have a good night that night or LeBron or Kobe, um, rest in peace, or um, whoever, um, if they have 32 points normally on this this streak, if they have a 50-point night, is that significant? If they have a 36-point night or a 48-point, this is the type of stuff we did in class was learning you know, what's outside the normal range of possibility, which is cool because it helps you to kind of look at life in a different way because the waves, we look at these curves now all the time. Uh, I taught about curves, norm, you know, basically kind of where's the curve going? Is it a double wave or all these different type of things? And these are things that I actually didn't teach, you know, teach stats during Corona. I left school right before Corona. I didn't leave school because Corona was coming. That would have been a crazy prediction, but I was ready to leave school. I've got other episodes on that one. But anyways, I didn't have to teach about this, but it would have been a wild time to teach about because the numbers are constantly developing in real time. So that's why it's important to have a statistical point of view. Um, It's funny when you teach a stats class and statistics, the word literally still throws you off sometimes. Um, But to understand that research, to understand the the messaging that's out there in the health world or in the layman kind of people world who are just like watching daytime TV and some of the messaging they get from Dr. Oz, etc. It's helpful to understand that and have a critical point of view. So that's what um, I would try to develop in this class. So um, an easy example of a People don't like numbers. That's what I always talk about on the first day. Numbers scare people. So the only numbers I'm going to talk about, we'll talk about the uh, classic polio trial, Jonas Salk. Um, we got 400,000 kids, I believe, was the, was, they were you know, trying to basically eradicate polio. And so the rate um, ended up being of incidence, uh, so new cases, ended up being 28 per 100,000 um, versus 71 per 100,000. When they looked at you know the vaccine versus its you know placebo counterpart, so obviously a significant drop there for that treatment um, and protection there. So that type of thing is what we're looking at. Is something going to be effective over its counterpart? Is strength training better at developing power versus running and distance training as you lead up to a competition? Um, depends on the competition. If you're leading up to a powerlifting competition, yes, the strength training is going to help. If you're li- leading up to a 20-mile run, you should probably do some training for that. So it's um, things that are specific, things that are um, progressive. We'll get into some things that are related to exercise, exercise science that are related to um, my wheelhouse is health promotion. It's like the individual level. What a individual chooses with nutrition, with exercise, with their own kind of sphere of influence, which affects their own family, their own, you know, interconnected relationships, which is really what public health gets at, which is, you know, the larger connections. How does that affect your community? How does that affect interconnected communities, etc.? So that's, uh, that's some of what biostatistics touches upon. 
Um, just trying to give y'all some free <laughs> game education, etc. That's uh, what we do here. So um, I'll catch y'all next week. I think I'm I'm good there. We'll get into some you know deeper level discussions on some of the terms we introduced today um, in the weeks to come. So hope y'all are well. Uh, who needs a classroom? Uh, if you do, come back next week. Um, we'll see if it may be biostats next week. I don't like to hold myself too accountable. <laughs> the whole idea with who needs a classroom is to basically have the freedom to do what I want to do. So if I need to talk about something else, I will. But there are going to be many different episodes of Biostats coming up. So this was part one. If you are uh, enjoying what you're hearing, please tell somebody if they might need a classroom. Uh, Tell them to check the podcast out. Uh, Hope you're well and uh, catch y'all soon. Peace. (music) 